0: Well, good evening, Saints. Good evening. It's glad to see y'all back after barbecue, Uh, usually after they have a picnic. Uh, I don't know if people fall asleep or they've just been at church so long uh, they get worn out, Uh, but usually we have less people here, so I'm glad to see you. Um, I don't know if you skipped the barbecue or just eager to come back. We've been going through the book of Titus and uh, as we've described the book of Titus, for uh, those of you who may be uh, jumping in, we've, we've talked about how Titus is a book that really describes itself as what we're to do between two poles. And one pole is the appearing of Jesus Christ. The p- grace has appeared. And the next Pole is the pole of grace. So we're between, uh, sorry, the next pole is the pole of glory. We have the pole of grace, that is Christ has appeared in grace, and we have glory, that is Christ is coming to establish his rule and kingdom. And Titus focuses on how should we live in the meantime. And it, it talks about this in reference to who our God is. Who your God is should be transforming who you are. And this is true no no matter which God you worship. In the book of Isaiah, uh, there's a warning against idolatry. And it says uh, of the people worshiping idols, you know, they're crying out to a God who can't hear them. Their God is deaf. It says they're bowing down before a God who can't see them. Their God is blind. They're waiting for a response of a God who can't talk. And it says, "And they'll be made like Him." It is, it is very interesting. What they're saying is, you know, they're blindly following idols who can't hear them, and they can't hear anything from them. They begin to become like the gods they worship. Uh, we see this in in other situations. I may have mentioned this before, I really like Norse mythology. And in Norse mythology, uh, you, you, uh, I want to describe to you what they view the ideal life as, what, what their pursuit of uh, glory, nobility, whatever you want to call it, is. And for them, uh, their ideal is to die in battle, to, to die a brave and, and bloody death in battle. So if you were becoming an old Viking, you'd start to get worried. You'd think, oh no, am I not going to die in battle? How awful is this? So, so the goal is to die in battle. If you, if you die a, a glorious death, then you get invited to Valhalla, which Valhalla is the heavenly mead hall. And, and there that's, you know, where the, the, their warrior gods, like, Thor and Odin and all those different guys were living. And uh, you go to the heavenly mead hall and and feast and celebrate there uh, because you've earned it through dying a a bloody and glorious death in battle. Uh, but, But that time in the heavenly mead hall is leading towards something. It's actually leading towards a final battle called Ragnarok when all the great and and mighty warriors who made it to Valhalla will gather together and fight the forces of chaos. And as they fight the forces of chaos, they will again achieve what in Viking ideology is considered the greatest honor. They will all die in battle against the forces of chaos, which will ultimately win in Ragnarok. Okay, that's their ideology. Those are the gods they serve. And you can see how that changes their, mytho- their, their lifestyle. If you ever wonder, why were those Vikings such bad-tempered fellows? You know, that explains it. They're becoming like the gods they're pursuing. And as we've looked just at the beginning of Titus, we've seen that Paul is somebody who's been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's encountered a God that he views as worthy of him becoming a servant and a slave of. His whole uh, to and from of the book is wrapped up in who is my God? How has my gospel changed me? He then uh, addresses Timothy in a common faith. He gives the blessing of grace and peace from God the Father. And then last week, we talked about what was Timothy's purpose. Titus. I was thinking in my mind, don't say Timothy, say Titus. And it still came out. Maybe I should have had that thought. If I say Timothy, I mean Titus. And if I say Peter, I mean Paul. Um, So we, we have Titus who's left in Crete, and Paul tells him that I left you there that you might put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So uh, I view the first command as the larger command, that is you're to set everything into order, and then the other one is a subset of that. One of the ways, one of the primary ways you do that is by appointing every t- elders in every local town town. So we talked a little bit last week about how we serve a God of order. We serve a God of order. He's ordered the universe. He himself is ordered. He's ordered in his morality. He's ordered in his decrees. Uh, and, and by the way, it's a really good thing we serve a God of order, isn't it? If we, if you, if we served a God of chaos or if we served a God that was not morally ordered, one day he says this, the next day he says something else. That would be a very difficult God to trust, wouldn't it? We serve a God of order, and because we serve a God of order, we should be a people of, we should be a church of order. And we see that part of Titus's job is to make sure that the church is ordered. We're going to look today at one of the means that is appointed in order to bring order in the church. And that is an elder. And we're going to look a little bit as what is an elder and and what should they look like? What's the quality or the kind of person that should be an elder? Uh, So with that in mind, uh, look with me. We're going to to be in Titus. Uh, Let's read 5 through 9. We're really just going to focus on 6 through 8. Um, for those of you who know me, it's, it's a miracle we're even going to cover three verses. Um, but uh, verse 5 and verse 9 will, will serve as a little bit of framing the issue. Verse 9 is related to this, but we're going to take a separate message to address that issue. Read with me Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint in every town as I, elders in every town as I directed you if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as god's steward must be above reproach He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled and upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we spend time in your word that we would be able to learn more about you. And not in an abstract way, but that we would grow in faith, hope, and love toward you as we see your goodness, your justice, your glory. And that we pray that as we grow in faith, hope, and love, we might be people who declare your glory, who do deeds honoring to you, who have attitudes reflecting the character and the nature of our God. May we be the people you have called us to be, and may we be a people who are zealous to do good works for your name. We pray these things in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have here uh, this idea of elder that's um, presented here as somebody who's uh, to be set up in every town, We have, by the way, just as we look at this, uh, two words that are used to describe this position. Uh, There's, in in verse 5, it says, appoint elders in every town. A little bit later in in verse 7, he says, appoint an overseer. Now, the word that's used uh, for elder is presbyteros, Uh, that you might... Uh, be able to notice that root. You know, there are people like Presbyterians get their, their name from, from that particular Greek root. Uh, Presbyteros. Presbyteros ha- has the idea. Elder is a good translation of it. But it has the idea of, of somebody who carries, uh, a, who serves as kind of a counselor, a wise sage. They're a moral and a religious authority. Uh, it, it was also a term that was used in the Greek, sorry, in the Jewish synagogues, I'm getting everything mixed up today. It was a term that was used in the synagogues. So they had elders who would rule over it. in, in fact, in in some of, in some of the passages where it talks about the people who oppose Christ, this, this word's used. You know, the the Jewish religious authorities, some of the elders, were opposed to the work he was doing. But it carries with it this this idea of somebody who's an authority, somebody you would go to for wise advice in terms of how to live your life or or, or what to do. Their word carried weight, and their decisions over moral and and social issues uh, carried with them a sense of authority. Uh, The other word that's that's used is called uh, episkopos. This this is the second one, uh, translated in verse 7. In my translation, it says overseer. Uh, Episcopos, again, you you got all these denominations named after them. Uh, you know, what's that sound like? Episcopal, Episcopal. yeah, a- a- absolutely right. Uh, there's some translations that uh, give this the word uh, bishop. Uh, and this idea it has, has a bit of a more pastoral uh, a nuance to it. Uh, both, I believe, are describing the same positions, but they're, they're different ways of describing it, giving it a little different flavor. Uh, and this one refers to a guardian or an overseer. It's somebody who who looks over the flock. It's it's somebody who takes care of the sheep, protects them, is concerned for them. So uh, those two words give us a little bit of insight into what is an elder. You know, these these words that are used. It's somebody with moral authority. It's somebody whose job it is to protect and guard the sheep. I, I, I would also say... Just just to give us an overarching definition, an elder is a steward charged with guarding the people of God in a specific location. An elder is a steward charged with guarding the people of God in a specific location. Uh, We have in in verse 7 after it says, for an overseer as God's steward. They're a steward. They're a caretaker. What are they taking care of? They're taking care of the God, God's people in a specific location. We notice that back at the beginning. By the way, there are three overarching themes that are being described here in reference to elders. It's elders should be there. Should be a first of all a plurality of elders. Second of all, there should be a locality of elders. And thirdly, there should be a quality of elders. In in this passage, that kind of covers the things that are being described. Uh, there, There should be a plurality. He says, I left you in Crete in order that you should appoint elders plural. Okay, so it's not just one person ruling over the church. It's not just all the powers invested in in, in one person. But there's this group of people that is charged with being caretakers, being shepherds over the churches. Another thing, in addition to plurality, is we see locality. He says, I want you to appoint it in every town. Uh, They need to be in the neighborhood. They need to be around the people. They need to be living among them. They, they need to be interacting with them. They need to be engaged. You, you don't want to have have the, the elder or the overseer way off in, in another town where he doesn't know what's going on with the people and the people don't know what's going on with them. They they need to be in their midst. And then quality. There is a certain quality of a person. There are certain characteristics that should appear. In an elder. And that's what the, the bulk of our passage today covers is uh, what kind of person should an elder be? Who is right for the job? Now, one of the things I want to say is the reason, the reason why the quality of an elder is very important goes back to our definition that we gave. The definition we gave is an elder. Is a steward charged with guarding the people of God in a specific location? I'll tell you a story, and then I'll, then I'll tell you its significance. When I was in seminary, I had a sleeping bag that I really liked. It, it was it, it was one of those camping sleeping bags. It was rated to zero degrees, uh, so you could go out in really cold weather. It, it was it was made of a material that you could compress it to. Smaller than the size of a football, if you needed to. So you could, it was great for backpacking or trips. I, I took it on a missions trip. We we took to Afghanistan and used it as, as bedding there. I really like this uh, this sleeping bag. Spent probably more than I should have on it, but you know, is real good, real nice quality. Well, it, when I was in seminary, uh, there was one time a friend of mine came up to me and he said, "Hey, do you happen to have a sleeping bag I could borrow?" And he, and he said, we've got a retreat that we're going on with the youth. He was helping out with the youth group. And um, I said, yeah, I've, I've got one. But listen, it, it's a really nice one. It's a really good one. It's a, don't lose it. You know, don't, don't misplace it. Well, he got back from the retreat, and he started asking me these questions. So what, what brand was that, you know? <laughs> you know, what, what, what kind was it? And, uh, uh, you know, I answered some of his questions. What, what had happened? It had gotten lost or or stolen at at the at the retreat, and he got me another, but it wasn't as nice, it, you know. It, it wasn't as good. It, it 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 wasn't the 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 high quality, high high dollar one. Now, I was I was a little disappointed about that. Now, that's that's just me, who's not that important of a person, and that's just a sleeping bag, which isn't in the big scheme of things, all that matter all that much. But I learned a valuable lesson. If you're not willing to give up something, don't loan it out. <laughs> don't have anybody else charged with its care. Now, I want you to think a moment with about who the elders are taking care of. They're taking care of the people of God, aren't they? It says, an elder as God's steward. That that means now whose possession are they taking care of? God's. That they're taking care of something that belongs to him. Something that he values highly. Okay? So so one of the reasons why we have these this why we have to answer this question of of what type of person can be an elder is, is the realization that the elder's position and the elder's function is extremely important because of the one to whom they are acting as a steward. They're stewarding for God. They're taking care of something that belongs to him. We need to take this position and this role rather seriously because of who it relates to. And, and we see in the description of what an elder should be like and what qualities they should have is that the bar is high and it's intended to be high. It's, it's not something that's intended to be low. And one of the things I want y'all to know is that you can be a good Christian, you can be a great Christian, you can be a great person and not be qualified to be an elder but there are specific parameters that are set in order to ensure that a certain type of person is in the position. And, and by the way, one thing we've, we've got to realize is uh, God has has certain reasons for doing certain things. And, 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 and as I said, just because you would be unqualified for an elder doesn't mean that you're a bad person or wicked or necessarily even there's some circumstances where you might be disqualified because of what somebody else did to you. Um, and by the way, this isn't just new to the Old, the New Testament. If you if you look at the types of priests that were allowed to serve in the temple, one of the things it says is um, they can't be deformed. They they can't be born cripple. Now, now yes, what's morally wrong with that? Well, nothing. But the servants who worked in the temple were to reflect the perfections of God. And as a result, those who were deformed or injured were disqualified. By the way, they were still taken care of. There were were provisions to provide for them. But they said in this role, in this place, you have to have certain parameters that they meet. So what type of person should be an elder? Uh, by the way, I, I, I will say people interpret this differently, so take the, take this with a grain of salt. Uh, people much smarter than me disagree on this point, and uh, other people who are smarter than me also agree with this. But I would say that what we are given here is not a rigid or a set checklist. And and the reason why I say that is because there is another passage that gives a similar list in, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, And they're not exactly the same. Now, if this is a rigid set checklist, what would you expect? You'd expect the exact same qualification for elders given to Timothy as was given to Titus. But instead, we have a description of the quality and kind of a person this should be. So uh, although it's very important, although it's a very good description, uh, I want to say, you know, this isn't a nitpicky list. This is describing the type and character of a person that should be in the position. Now, uh, let's look at w- what type of person this should be. We've kind of circled around it. Now, now let's get into it. Uh, first of all, we see that a person must have a certain level of quality to qualify. The first thing to notice about the qualifications is that there are some. That, that, that there, there have to be a certain quality of a person in order to apply. Now, one of the first qualities we see is that this person needs to be morally ordered in their marriage. That's one of the first things that's brought up. It's brought up in, in both lists, by the way. Uh, it says he must be, above, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Uh, the language uh, that, that's used there is literally a one-woman man. Uh, the, the guy needs to be a one-woman man. Now, in the ancient culture, the big challenge to this was polygamy. Uh, a d- divorce did exist and remarriage did, did exist, but probably the, the more common issue that would have been a, an issue would be polygamy. Uh, but I've, there's somebody I've read, and he said, he's pointed out, that you know, one of the issues we have in our church, we still have the issue of polygamy. It's just serial, not simultaneous polygamy. <laughs> so, so you, you you may you may have multiple spouses, but but you, you do them in a, a different order. Uh, you don't have them all at, at once. So here it is saying this person needs to be committed and ordered in his marriage. He, he doesn't need to be marrying uh, multiple people. He's, he's not somebody who is. Um, out of con- control in, in terms of his desire for marriage and things like that. So the first area of moral order that an elder should exhibit is in his marriage. The second way, in a very similar way, is he must be morally ordered over children. So so with both of those, we see that family and, and the way in which the elder handles family is very important. Uh, he must be morally or, over ordered over children. Uh, by the way, that translations differ but he says uh, his children are believers the language that exactly there is uh, children who are faithful so there, there's kind of most translations will, will make a, a decision they'll say either children who have faith and translate it as children who are believers or children who are faithful that but, but you see how those could be in, interpreted very differently are they faithful to the family? Or are they faithful to the Lord? Are, are they believers or are they under the rule and the authority of the father? The, the, to be honest, the, the second half of the description makes me think that the, the idea of children who are faithful is more of the idea that's going on here. It, it says they are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This guy's children aren't running wild. And by the way, this is referring to young, young children who are in the home. So their, their children aren't running wild. They're ruling over them. And, and by the way, part of the purposes of these commands it isn't just to protect the church from certain people. It's to protect certain people from the church as well. If you're, if you're, if you're having trouble being morally ordered in your family life, the next, the last thing you need is another group of people who are depraved and sinful that you're responsible for if, if you're if you're dealing with with the problems of of rebellious and, and difficult children that needs to be your focus that that that's what you need to take care of and, and deal with so as these things are, are being laid out it's partially for the benefit of the church, that they get somebody who has the ability to establish moral order in in these areas and and partially to protect some people from the position so that they don't have more troubles on, on top of their already difficult lives. The elder is to be morally ordered in their family, both in relation to their marriage and in respect to their children. We also see that they should be morally ordered with respect to God and outsiders. The one thing that's repeated twice is that the, they must be above reproach. And in, in verse 7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So they, they must be above reproach with respect to God and with respect to outsiders. The idea of above uh, approach means accusations cannot be leveled against them. They can't say, well, this guy, he shouldn't be doing it because everybody knows he's a fill-in-the-blank. They must be a reputable person. And that means that they're morally ordered with respect to God and with respect to others. The, The next area of moral order we see is that an elder should be and by the way you you know you might be sitting there and thinking oh well this isn't for me look these these statutes for an elder are things just for all of us to strive for they're all areas we can be improving upon the next thing we see is that an elder must be morally ordered against vice it says, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, part of the reason why I said this isn't a, a checklist is because there, could, there are some other vices that could slip in that might disqualify a person. You know, this isn't, you know, set and fast here, but it's describing a certain type of person, isn't it? It's describing a, the type of person who, who is in control of the sins that tend to, to influence men that tend to dominate them and domineer them. One of the things it also shows is that the elder is not living for his own glory. Very important for a steward of God. The elder is not living for his own glory. Because look at these vices. What's a, what's a common trait? He's not arrogant. What's an arrogant person care about? Himself, his glory. His smarts, his accomplishments. What's a a quick-tempered person care about? They care about themselves. Don't upset me. Don't get in my way. Don't do that to me. What's a drunkard concerned with? A drunkard is concerned with their pleasure. What joy do I get? What what enjoyment do I get? I want to engage in enjoyment to an extent that it will harm me and others. What's somebody who's violent? They care about their glory more than they care about causing harm to others. What's greedy for gain? I care about my security more than paying people fairly, more than treating others well. Greedy for gain. All, all, All these vices are describing somebody whose priority is their own glory. That is not something that is desirable in an elder we we see then that not only should the elder be morally ordered against vice we don't just want somebody neutral who avoids all the negatives you also want somebody who has some positive traits you want them morally ordered towards virtue we see this in in the next list that's described but In contrast to the other descriptions, hospitable, a lover of goods, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Somebody who's hospitable cares about others. They engage them even at a loss, even if they stay at your home or eat your food, even if it costs you something. Think of the good Samaritan. What all did the good Samaritan sacrifice? He sacrificed a lot. Sacrifice his time, his effort, his money to care for somebody else. He wasn't obligated to. They need to be lovers of good. Not just neutral, but they, they want to be really engaged in good. By the way, the, the title of this series um, is The Zeal of the Redeemed. That comes from Titus 2 14. Then of it, It talks about God's purpose in saving us. And it says to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, saints, I preach to myself when I get up here. And one of the reasons why I picked the book of Titus is because Titus is working towards having a group of people who are dedicated to the Lord and energized by doing good for him. it says they're zealous for it they're crazy about it they're, they're a little bit nuts when it comes to this here he's saying they love to do good it's not just like okay well i guess we'll have to help him out and he's like no we love to help people out we want to do this we are pursuing this wholeheartedly we see they're also self-controlled upright holy disciplined you, you get the sense that they're well ordered they're in control of themselves uh they're generous and gracious both internally and externally they're ruled by the principles of the gospel uh finally this is one we're really going to talk a lot more about next week is is that they're doctrinally sound and able to teach Uh, that's in verse 9, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I think everything else is kind of leading up to that. Uh, So we'll spend more time next week fleshing that point out. But they need to be doctrinally sound. Now, as we've gone through that list, you might have picked up that I've been emphasizing that the elders need to be a morally ordered people. They they need to be ordered in that way. And as I say that, I I want you to have a clear understanding of what I'm saying. Because you might hear that and you might hear, oh, this is a really works-oriented person. But remember the model that we've been using. That is, we believe that our theology transforms our identity and produces a certain type of action. That is, who our God is transforms who we are and therefore transforms how we live. Now, being morally ordered means you you are in the right part of that process and you follow the right direction. And and remember, the direction is really important. Because if you start at the other end and say, if I act a certain way, if I do these things, then that makes me a Christian. And that will make God pleased with me. If you start on the the wrong end, it has a very dangerous effect. You, You begin to start promoting something that is legalism. That's really, truly idolatry. Because the root of idolatry is having a God I can control. You realize that, don't you? The reason why the Israelites went away from the worship of the one true God. By the way, what did they do to the other gods? You know, they're sacrificing animals. In an agricultural society, that's a big deal. They were sacrificing animals to them. Why? Because they wanted something back from that God. They said, all right, if I sacrifice this to this particular God, I'll get rain. If I sacrifice this to this particular God, the Lord will cure my wife's barrenness. At the root of idolatry is having a God you can negotiate and bargain with. If I give you this, you give me that. And by the way, there are a lot of people that claim to serve the God of Christianity, but they're functioning in a form of idolatry where they're negotiating with God. No, no, no. To be morally ordered means to recognize that God, through Jesus Christ, is the one who has saved us based on his grace, his mercy, his love for us. And that because he has done that, we're we're in debt over our eyeballs. There, There is nothing we can do to pay that back. And the good news is he didn't give that as a debt to repay. He gave it as a free gift. But because he has given that to us and because we recognize that we have a God of love, we have a God of mercy, we have a God of grace who is coming back to judge the world, we should be living a different way. That that should change who I am. I am no longer a child of darkness, condemned to wrath and hell. But I've been made a child of God. I've entered into his kingdom. He is pleased with me because of what Christ has done on my behalf. He has given me his Holy Spirit to empower me that I might live in a manner appropriate to him. I've been reconciled with my heavenly father and I will see him either when I die and go to heaven or when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. All that to say, being morally ordered means I have properly responded to the grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ. And that has been revealed in the gospel. That, that's what I mean by morally ordered. I don't mean somebody who's working really hard for it in their own power and on their own terms. We have these elders who who serve an important role. We've said that we serve a God of order. And this is one of the primary ways in which the church is to be ordered. Church is ordered under God's authority. Then then God gives, through the elders, the responsibility, the stewardship, to take care of not their church, but his church, as under-shepherds. And the church, they are to provide the church with moral order. That's one of the reasons why the requirements are are so important, is if they aren't virtuous, if if they don't have a well-ordered life in respect to God and in respect to the gospel, then how are they to provide that to the church? Saints, you can only give what you got. You can only give what you got. If, if you don't have the gospel, if you don't have grace, if you don't have the love of Jesus Christ, it's going to be real hard to give that. The reason, the reason why the elders should got these things is so that they can give these things and provide order and moral order in the church. They're responsible to God for the church. They're responsible to protect, to care, and oversee. Now, taking just kind of the two halves of what we've been talking about, uh, I'll give you kind of a final statement to summarize this whole thing. An elder is a steward of God's people who is required to be morally ordered in his marriage and family life, in his relationship to God and society, and his relationship to virtue and vice. All this comes from a right relationship. With glory and grace, and a right relationship to the One who has revealed these things to us. Next week we're going to talk about the importance of doctrine and how it relates to an elder's role. Uh, let us close now with a benediction. We don't have another song, do we? All right. Uh, Here the benediction. I'll give a, a, the benediction from what I think is is the heart and the core. Of Titus Titus two eleven, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Go and live in the light of the reality that is brought to us by Jesus Christ. Amen.